do you enjoy math? Jeremiah says, yes. Um, most of you know I am not a fan of math. No offense to our math teachers. They're sitting over here. No offense. I respect you immensely because you can do what I could not do. I could never do. Um, math is challenging to me. Math seems abnormal. Like You know those problems that you have that say, like, uh, so-and-so bought 64 watermelons at the grocery store? Like, when does that ever happen in real life? Why don't we... Why don't we say that's not real and give the test back? That's what I would do. My sentiments towards math are what one student said on a test. He, he wrote, quote, dear math, I'm sick and tired of trying to find your ex. Just accept the fact that she's gone, move on. <laughs> Another student wrote, dear math, please grow up and solve your own problems. I'm tired of solving them for you. Math class for me, was like watching a foreign movie with no subtitles. My math teacher would talk, just like that Charlie Brown teacher, just no words, just sounds, and I knew I was failing whatever the exam was. Not a big fan of math, can't do it, but there is one area and category of math that I relish, I love, and it's biblical math. It's biblical math because I feel like there is something as we dive in that we are seeing glory in front of our eyes and it takes a little bit of math to see it. So this morning with our trusty iPhone calculators, we're going to have some fun diving into one of the most amazing prophecies in the entire Bible. I know that I exaggerate a lot. I know that. I know I speak in hyperboles, but this is literally one of the most amazing prophecies in the entire Bible. It's also one of the hardest. That's why last week we dipped our toe into the shallow end of this text. And we tried to figure out what can we know without getting stuck in the details. This text gets very technical. So what can we know without getting too bogged down? And we said three things. We can know that this is, this prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks is an answer. Gabriel is answering Daniel Daniel asks, when will we go back to our land and be at peace? And this is an answer to that. Secondly, this is mainly for Jewish people. This is for you, your people, and your holy city. Mainly for Jewish people. And then third, we saw that somebody is going to have to do the work that the Jewish people could not do. They were sent to exile, and their exile was discipline, but it wasn't uh, purgative. It didn't purge them of their sinfulness. It didn't purge them of their wickedness. They're going to go back to Israel with sinful hearts. And so somebody's going to have to do the work to change their hearts, and that is the Messiah. So that's what we were able to see, just at you know, face value at the top, kind of looking down. And now we're going to dive in deep. And commentators all agree that this is the hardest portion of Daniel. And that's really all that commentators agree on with regard to this portion of Daniel. After that, they just, there are so many different interpretations. Alistair Begg says this, quote, If you ever hear somebody say, this text is perfectly clear, Daniel's 70 weeks are perfectly clear. Then you know that they haven't read the text at all. <laughs> this is a hard text. Alistair Begg goes on to say, I reserve the right to change my mind on these matters and my interpretations of them, maybe even by tonight. I love that. We're, we're not talking about salvific issues in matters of interpretation. We're talking about a very difficult text that I think as we dive into it, we'll be able to gain some clarity 
and then we'll see the implications for our lives. This is going to be a little bit of a different kind of sermon because it's a different kind of text. What I want to do is just walk through this text by asking questions. Normally, we we don't really have to do the asking of questions. We've already done that in the study, and I'm just able to say, here's what the text says. I want to ask the questions together and answer them together. And really what I want to do is uh, what I do every time we open the Bible. Every time you open the Bible, this is what we should be doing together. What does the text say? What does it mean by what it says? And what does that meaning mean for us? That's really Bible study. That's reading the Bible. What does it say? We're just making observations. We're going to ask questions. As we answer those questions, what does it say? Here's what it says. Okay, what does that mean? Now we're looking for authorial intent. Now we're looking for what did Daniel mean? What did Gabriel mean? What's the interpretation? And then we can't stop there because if we stop there, we've just gained knowledge. We haven't gained any transformation. So once we figure out the technical details, then we have to ask, so what? What does the text say? What does it mean? What does it mean by what it says? What does it say? What does it mean? And what does that meaning mean for us today? So if you have your copy of God's word, Daniel chapter nine is where we are. And I want to read verses 24 through 27, ask God's blessing on our time. And we'll dive in together. This is Gabriel speaking. He says, verse 24, 70 weeks have been determined for your people for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the holy of holies. So you are to know and have insight that from the going out of a word or a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be restored and rebuilt with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will make sacrifice and grain offerings to cease. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing on our time. God, we come to this portion of your word. It is no less significant than other portions because it is you speaking to us. It is no more significant than other portions because it is following the storyline of the Bible and pointing us to Christ, which all of scripture ultimately does. It tells us the story of your redemption Project, the purpose of redemption to reclaim a people for yourself. And so we, we read and we stagger. We stagger at the awesome privilege that we have to, to hear you speak to us, to hear you address us. And so we want to, we want to understand, but we don't want to just understand technical details. We want to understand your glory. We want to see your glory. We want to see the glory that's in this text, 
We don't want to just walk away with a timeline figured out and answers uh, to the questions that we had. We want to walk away with glory in our hearts and in our heads in such a way where we are blown away by your character, your goodness. God, we pray that you would be big in our eyes and our vision this morning as we see you in these verses. So give us understanding, but give us understanding to see you. Give us understanding to see Christ. Holy Spirit, as we pray every Lord's Day, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things now from your law. We need your help. And we are excited and expectant to see what you will do this morning. We give this time to you. We pray in your name. Amen. Daniel chapter 9 has, uh, these, these verses have four main questions that I want to ask and answer together. Okay, four main questions that I want to ask and answer together. And then after we answer them, I think we'll have an idea of the so what of this text. Question number one, you can write these down if you'd like to. Question number one, what are the 70 weeks? What are these 70 weeks? Verse 24, 70 weeks have been determined. What are these 70 weeks? The, the Hebrew there is not weeks. Maybe your Bible has a little footnote or a little note in the margin. The Hebrew is the word seven. So it's literally 70 sevens or 70 units of seven. So if in our mind, we think, why are they saying 70 sevens? Why, why is Gabriel responding that way? That sounds strange to our ears. Just remember, this isn't strange to a Jewish ear. Just like if I were to say, give me a dozen eggs, that's not strange to you. That's not a number that I said. I'm giving you a numerical value with a, a, a phrase. If I were to say weeks, that's seven. If I were to say dozen, that's 12. You know that because that's part of our common vernacular. Jewish people thought in the number seven. So when Gabriel says 77s, we translate that as weeks to remind us that it's seven periods, seven things. The question is, what are these 70 sevens? What are these sevens? And are we to take them literally? A lot of people will say, well, it's symbolic. It's a period of time. Obviously, it's a period of time. But some people say it's just a symbolic period of time. We don't really know. It, it might be a literal week. It might be years. We don't really know. So we're just going to take it symbolically. And here's why I would kick against that. Because remember, Jeremiah said that it was going to be 70 years before the Jews were sent back to Jerusalem from the exile in Babylon. So Daniel heard 70, he read 70, and he took that literally. And I think that we should do the same with Daniel. I think Daniel would want us to take this literally as a literal 77. Another reason why we can take it literally is Leviticus chapter 26 speaks of the punishment of the people in Israel in sevens. It uses that phrase, quote from Leviticus 26 verse 18. If also after these things you don't obey me, I will punish you seven times more for your sins. So seven, we can take it literally. The question is, what are these sevens? And I want to submit to you that it's seven years. So seven, 70 times seven years. That's why I said we have to do a lot of math to understand this. So seven times 70 equals 490. Yes, Ben? Okay, good. Seven times 70 equals 490. So I believe that this is 490 years, 70 weeks, literally 70 sevens, seven periods of years, seven years. So 70 periods of seven years, so 490 years. Again, we pull back. Here's what Gabriel's saying. Yes, 
Daniel. It will be 70 years, and then you're going to go back to your homeland. But there are 70 sevens for the totality of God's plan for your people. You're going to go back home after 70 years, yes. But there's a lot more that God has planned for you. Don't just look at the short term. Daniel's saying, when are we going back to our land? It was 70 years, right? And that's why Gabriel says, yeah, 77s. He's timesing it. He's exponentially adding to it to say, there's way more than you're thinking about, Daniel. And I, I think already we have an implication. You and I tend to want God to work immediately. We tend to want that microwavable Christianity. God, I'm not in a place where I want to be. Make it happen now. I don't like my sanctification. I don't like my maturity. I want to grow now. But God is a God who usually works through long processes. And he's doing that here. Daniel, you're looking at 70 years. I'm telling you, 70 times seven. Get a bigger vision. Get a longer vision. Second question. So what are the 70 weeks? Question number one, what are these 70 weeks? They're 70 times seven, 70 sevens, and I believe that's seven years, so 70 times seven years, so it's 490 years. Second question, what's going to happen as a result of these 70 years? These 70 weeks, rather. What's going to happen as a result of these 70 weeks? Verse 24, 70 weeks have been determined for your people, Daniel, your people, the Jews, and your holy city, Jerusalem, to, he's going to list six different things. Here's what's going to happen as a result of these 70 weeks. This is the purpose of these 70 weeks. Number one, to finish the transgression. The transgression. The, the word finish is to destroy, to completely destroy. The transgression. Transgression has the definite article attached to it. So it's most likely referring to Israel's transgression, Israel's apostasy. So it's, it's not going to take 70 years before you're done with your apostasy. It's going to take a lot longer than that, Daniel. Your people aren't going to go back in 70 years and then be totally committed to me. No, they're going to keep on running away from me. So it's going to take a while before you finish your apostasy. But there is going to become an end point. There is a finish. For 490 years to finish the transgression. Number two, to make an end of sin, to end the effects of the sin, to stop the exile, to stop the discipline. God will ultimately deal with all of their Sin and the effects of their sin. Exile couldn't atone for it, so God's going to do that. And that's the third thing. To make atonement for iniquity. To make atonement. Literally, the word atonement is to cover all of your sin. To cover all of your iniquity. And notice Gabriel is using the same words for wickedness and sin that Daniel used in his prayer. Daniel was praying. He was confessing his sin and the sin of the people. And he was longing for that complete return. He was saying, we've committed iniquity. We've sinned. We've done wickedly. We've been stubborn. We've been rebellious. He was giving all of those synonyms, and here Gabriel picks up on those to finish the transgression, end sin, make atonement for iniquity. So Daniel, your prayer is a good prayer, but it's going to take longer than you think for all of this to come about. Gabriel's saying, Daniel, it's going to happen, but it's going to be a lengthier timeline than you think. And it's going to be accomplished by somebody else. The Messiah is going to do it. The fourth thing to bring in everlasting righteousness. The Messiah is going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Remember, this was Daniel's concern in his prayer. God, if we go home after the 70 years of exile are completed, when we go home, we're still going to be sinful people. How are we going to be totally righteous before you if we're still sinners? If we still have sin in our hearts, we're going to go back home. The same thing's going to happen. And so Gabriel says, yes, Daniel, that's what's going to happen. And that's why God's going to come 
And he's going to bring about everlasting righteousness. The fifth thing is to seal up vision and prophecy. Because once the Messiah shows up, once he's here to stay, once he's established his kingdom and brought in everlasting righteousness, we don't need these kinds of prophecies and visions again. We don't need it anymore. I wonder when Gabriel said that, if Daniel breathed a sigh of relief, because he's writing all these prophecies down, right? He's exhausted in doing it. And Gabriel says, there's coming a day when your job is gone. You're done. You don't need to prophesy anymore. There's going to be no more visions anymore. And finally, number six, 70 weeks have been decreed to anoint the most holy place or anoint the holy of holies. That's in the temple. So the temple's got to be rebuilt, which is what Daniel was thinking. Daniel was praying, are we going to go back to Jerusalem, have our temple again, be able to worship Yahweh again? And Gabriel's saying, yes, that's going to happen. But it's going to take longer than you think. So six different things. So here's my question. Have all of these been fulfilled? You can answer me. Have all of these things been fulfilled? No, clearly not, right? Are we living in a world with everlasting righteousness? No. So either you have to take that somewhat symbolically and say, well, there's everlasting righteousness in the kingdom of God in a spiritual sense, or taking it at face value, which I think Daniel would do, there's still a kingdom yet to come with everlasting righteousness. In fact, the first three of these six are partially fulfilled at the first coming, but the second three can only be fulfilled at the second coming. The first coming of Christ, he kind of ended the transgression, but Israel's still in apostasy. They are not following Yahweh as their God. So it can't fully be fulfilled until the second coming. He's definitely made an end of sin for you and for me, yes, but the effects of the sin have still remained. He's absolutely made atonement. Amen, amen, atonement is done for. But he hasn't brought in everlasting righteousness. Vision and prophecy haven't been sealed up. We know that because Revelation tells us that two witnesses will show up. They're going to prophesy. So that's still yet to come. And the Holy of Holies has not been anointed with sacrificial systems continuing. That hasn't happened yet. So there's some that's yet to come. And that already we're seeing there's a future aspect to what Gabriel's saying. So two questions thus far. What are the 70 weeks? So they're 77s, literally 490 years. And then what's happening as a result of these 70 weeks? Six different things that Gabriel says, this is the purpose of all these years. This is the point. Some of it's happened partially, but we're still waiting for a lot of it to happen. That leads us to question number three. What is the progression of these 70 weeks? As in, how do they play out? What's the progression of these 70 weeks? How do they play themselves out? And I think Gabriel gives us a great description of how they play themselves out. Remember, this is all in response to Daniel asking, when do we go back to our land? When do we go back to Jerusalem, get our temple back? Gabriel's saying, hey, you're going to get that. But there's something way greater than, than you're even asking for that God's going to plan, that God's got a plan for, and he's going to make happen. So here's the progression. Verse 25. You are to know and have insight that from the going out of a word or a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. We'll talk about why it's split up into those two, seven and 62. But there's 69 weeks. You are to know and have insight. So Gabriel says there's going to be a decree that's going to come, Daniel. And when that decree happens, start the watch. You can count 69 weeks. So 69 times seven, you can count 483 years and you'll get to Messiah the Prince. You can count it. 
So we look at that and we go, okay, where's the decree? We're waiting for the decree. Dan was waiting for the, the decree. And God, in his infinite sense of humor, has given us four decrees in the Bible that were given in Daniel's lifetime, that were given in the time period of Daniel and after, right after Daniel. So there could be four to choose from. There's four different decrees that could be this one decree that we're looking at. So which decree is it? I think that it's probably one of two, and I'm going to pick the very earliest decree and the very last decree. The first decree is in Ezra chapter 7, verse 11. It's in 557 BC. It's a decree from Artaxerxes. And if you have, so here's, here's our math. I have to write this down because I can't do this on the fly. If you have 557 BC, it was probably 558 by the time it was actually lived out. So 558 BC, the decree of, of Artaxerxes to Ezra. If you subtract 49 years, then you're at 409 BC. Then you subtract from the 409, 440, 434 years, and it lands you at 27 AD because there's no zero year. Remember, it goes 1 BC to 180, there's no zero year. So 27 AD, that's one time period when Jesus was baptized. He was either baptized in 27 AD or 30 AD. So if you hold this view of this decree, then you have the decree that Ezra receives to the baptism of Jesus. And you have a fulfillment of this, right? The, the, the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. You get to go back home. The exile's done. And Messiah the Prince. So it could be that one. That would land you at 27 AD. The second option, if we go all the way further, the second option would be 444, 445 BC. This is uh, another decree by Artaxerxes given to Nehemiah. This is in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, verse 1. And if you start this one, so the clock starts at 445 BC, subtract your 49 years, the first seven weeks, and you land at 396 BC. Then you subtract the 62 weeks or the 434 years, and you land at 38 AD. And you're thinking, 38, that's way past Jesus. Yes, it is. But there's a way to understand, pull it back a little bit because... Instead of the years being 365 days, they're 360-day years, which that's not just, uh, you know, making up a number. That's actually in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, you see 1,260 days equals uh, three and a half years. So 360-year day works. 360-day year works. So here, if that is the case, you have 444, 445 BC, all the way to 33 AD, and you have the triumphal entry. So we have two options for the decrees here. Let's sum it up. Two options. Number one, Ezra gets a decree to go back to Jerusalem. And that decree starts the, the timeline, goes all the way to the baptism of Jesus in 27 AD. Or you have the decree in 444, 445 BC, Artaxerxes given to Nehemiah, that goes all the way to the triumphal entry in 33 AD. Now, after all of that, here's what you need to know. And here's what we can know. No matter if you take the earliest decree or the latest decree, we have a window of time, 27 AD to 33 AD. We have a window of that decree happening. The decree has been given and we have our 483 years and it gives us a window. And we land there, either the baptism of Jesus or the triumphal entry. 
Those are our options. No matter where you start, it ends in the life of Christ. And since the next portion of this prophecy is about the destruction of Jerusalem, and we know that happened in 70 AD, and Gabriel says it's happening after Messiah the Prince is killed, then we know that Jesus had to have been born, lived, died, and ascended into heaven before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So we're given a very clear understanding of a timeline of what's going on. Jim Boyce says it this way, by whatever set of calculations you make, the point is, that by the end of the 69 weeks of years, or shortly thereafter, the great work of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ for sin will be completed. That's it. And that's why Gabriel says, you're to know this. You can have insight. By the way, I think this is why the, the, the wise men, when they show up, they, they were reading this prophecy. We know Messiah is going to be born in some form of a time window of here. We know this is happening. So I think that's why they know, because they read the book of Daniel. By the way, why is it split up into seven weeks, 62 weeks? I think that's because the seven weeks, the seven uh, weeks of years, the 49 years, I think that that's a reference to Nehemiah's work to the end of the Old Testament, to the end of the writing of the Old Testament. So Nehemiah's work to do this, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, to the end of the writing of the Old Testament. And then the second group is the 434 years, which I believe goes from the close of the Old Testament to Messiah, to Messiah being cut off. But remember the original question. The whole original question in Daniel's prayer is, God, when are we going to go back to Jerusalem? And here's the answer. You're going to go back after this period of time, 483 years, you're going to go back and it will, middle of verse 25, Jerusalem will be restored and the temple will be rebuilt with plaza and moat. I don't know about you, when I hear the word moat, I think like medieval times. That's not the word moat here. The word literally is trench. It's referring to digging down the base of the wall. So you wanted a high fortified wall for your city so that people couldn't just climb over. So there were two ways to do that. You either build high or dig low in front of it. And so you usually did both. That's what this word is, the trench. It'll be built, it'll be fortified. But it'll be fortified even in times of distress. End of verse 25. This is Nehemiah chapter four and Nehemiah chapter six. Incredible opposition against the building of the walls in Jerusalem. So everything that Gabriel is saying has come true up until this point in verse 25. The decree went out. Messiah has come. The temple was rebuilt. And it was rebuilt during times of distress. And then after that, verse 26. After the 62 weeks, so the seven weeks and the 62, the 69 years, the 69 weeks, the 483 years, after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. Literally a word for destroyed, killed, and have nothing. And then we're introduced to another group of people and another person. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, some people go, well, prince, the word prince was used in verse 25 to speak of the Messiah. So this is the people of the Messiah. This is God's people. I would argue it can't be because it's saying that these people, God's people are destroying Jerusalem and the temple. God's people didn't do that. Whether you take it church or whether you take it Jews, neither group of people did that. So These are a different group of people because this is a different prince. This is a prince who is to come. This is somebody yet to come. And the people that follow him, the people who are like him, the people that want to be like him in his evil ways are following after him and destroying the city. And that happened again in 70 AD. The city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. So in Gabriel's prophecy here, we have Gabriel saying, You're going to go back to Jerusalem. 
Messiah is going to show up. Temple is going to have been rebuilt. Messiah is going to show up. Messiah is going to die. And then after Messiah dies, the temple is going to be destroyed and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. That's what we have so far. Regarding the destruction of Jerusalem, one commentator writes this, very helpful. During the long siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, a terrible famine raged in the city and the bodies of the inhabitants were literally stacked like cordwood in the streets. Mothers ate their children to preserve their own strength. The toll of Jewish suffering was horrible, but they would not surrender the city. When at last the walls were breached, Titus, who was in charge of this siege, tried to preserve the temple. He thought it was so beautiful, he tried to preserve it by giving orders to his soldiers not to destroy or burn it. But the anger of the soldiers against the Jews was so intense that maddened by the resistance they had encountered, they disobeyed the order of their general and they set fire to the temple. There were great quantities of gold and silver in the temple, which had been placed there for safekeeping. This all melted down and ran between the rocks and into the cracks of the stones. And when the soldiers captured the temple area in their greed to obtain this gold and silver, they took long bars, pried apart the massive stones. Thus, quite literally, not one stone was left standing upon another, just like Jesus had said. The temple itself was totally destroyed, though the wall supporting the area upon which the temple was built was left partially intact, and a portion of it remains to this day. You know, it's the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. But Gabriel says, Daniel, you're going to go back. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. The temple will be rebuilt. Messiah is going to show up. Messiah is going to die, and the temple will be destroyed. And then he says this. This is where he's going to make the telescope go out a lot farther for us. At the end of verse 26, he says, at the end, at its end, middle of verse 26, at its end will come with a flood. Its end will come with a flood. It, meaning Jerusalem and the temple. That end of Jerusalem and the temple will come with a flood. It will be flooded with people, flooded with a war zone. It will be destroyed. But then he says this, even to the end, not its end, but the end. I think this is a different end. I don't think this is the ending of Jerusalem and the temple because he says that's going to happen. And then he says from that point forward all the way to the end, the end of the age, the end all the way to the end. There's going to be war and desolations are decreed. So now he's gone from let's stare at 70 AD and he goes, you know what, Daniel, you're going to get your temple back. You're going to get your city back and then it's going to be destroyed. And then you're not going to get it right back. And it's going to be another war zone all the way to the end. It's going to be absolute destruction. So we ask the question, what is the progression of these 70 weeks? How do they play out? And I think the answer is, when the decree is given, either from Artaxerxes to Ezra or Artaxerxes to Nehemiah, you can start the stopwatch 483 years all the way to Messiah, either his baptism in 27 AD or his death, or the triumphal entry in 33 AD. Those are our options. Either way, you land in that six-year window of time. God's going to work that out. In the middle of that time period, the temple will be rebuilt under distress. The city of Jerusalem will be rebuilt under distress. And then after Messiah is killed, the temple will be destroyed by the people of this prince who is yet to come. So, That's a lot. It's technical. Here's one thing we can know right off the bat. One implication. God knows and has a time frame and a time period to the very day 
for everything that's going to happen. I was reading in my Bible reading plan for this year, going through Exodus. God says in Exodus to Moses, hey, it's been 430 years to the day. It's in there to the day. He says, I I prophesied, I told Abraham that was going to happen. You are my people. You're going to get this land, but you're not going to get it right away because it's going to take a while. It's going to be 430 years. And God says to Moses, hey, it's 430 years to the day. I told you it was going to happen and it happened. We can trust in God's sovereign control over all things. Finally, one last question. What is this last week? When is this last week? And what happens in it? What is this last week? Verse 27. So we've covered verse 24, 25, and 26. Now we get to the 70th week of Daniel. We get to this last week. What is this last week? When is this last week? And what happens in it? So we've got one last week, verse 27. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. One more period of seven years. We have three main options. Three main options. Either this 70th week began immediately after the 69th week. Or it's not a literal seven years. It's just a symbolic measure of time. Or it's a literal seven-year period that's yet to come. So let's take those in stride. Number one. Is the 70th week of Daniel right after the 69th week? So remember, what happened at the end of the 69th week, Messiah was cut off. So therefore, if the 70th week happens right after, so we're in 33 AD, I believe Jesus died in 33 AD. Some people believe 30 AD, it both work. Uh, I think it's 33, I could tell you why later. But 33 AD, if we have 33 AD, and then we have seven years, we're up to 40 AD, nothing happened in 40 AD. Nothing happened. So all that's being described in verse 27, most people who would take this happening right after Jesus died would take it as the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, but that's 70 AD, not 40 AD. So it can't be the 70th week happens right after the 69th week. In fact, I think you can prove that in the text. Jesus doesn't die at the end in the 69th week. He dies after. So 69 weeks have happened, 483 years have happened, and then a pause. There's a gap. There's a break. Jesus dies. And then the 70th week starts. Jesus doesn't die at the end of the 69th or the beginning of the 70th. They they happen, they're bookends to his death. So I think there's a gap. I don't think it happens right after. Secondly, I don't think it's symbolic. There are some people, and again, these are all brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not a hill to die on. There are some people who would say that this is now a symbolic period of seven years. It's not actually seven years. It's a symbolic period of time but this is really bad hermeneutics because they would take the 483 years as literal years, the 69 weeks, they'd say from the decree of Artaxerxes to Messiah being killed. We've got that 483 years. That's literal. And then they'd go, but this seven years, that's figurative. That doesn't work. That doesn't work in hermeneutics, in Bible interpretation. You can't just switch your hermeneutic. Gabriel, if he were standing here, he'd go, "Uh uh-uh, that's not what I said. You can't take one literal and then just switch the next one to make it figurative. You can't do that. So if we're going to take the first literal, the 483 years, which we should, the next is going to be literal. So I believe that the 70th week of Daniel, verse 27, is a period of literal seven years that's still in the future, that's yet to come. Here's a couple other reasons why. Number one, we already talked about this. The six goals that were stated in verse 24 haven't been completed yet. We're still waiting for those things to happen. 
Number two, the person who affirms this covenant, verse 27, he's going to make a firm covenant. It can't be Jesus because Jesus didn't make a covenant and then break a covenant. He didn't make a covenant with people and then turn on that covenant during his earthly ministry. That's what happens here. He's going to make a firm covenant. Whoever this guy is going to make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of that week, he's going to make sacrifice and grain offering to cease. By the way, we have a temple again. Right? The temple's destroyed in 70 AD, but here, a future seven-year period of time, we're going to have a temple because there's sacrifices and grain offerings. And then this person's going to stop that in the middle of this seven-year period, three and a half years into it. It can't be Jesus because he didn't make and break a covenant. Also, verse 27 can't be Jesus because it corresponds most clearly to the prince who is to come. If you look at the grammar here, verse 26 says, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with the flood. And he, the prince who is to come, he will make the firm weak. The nearest antecedent is not Jesus. It's this prince who is to come. Can't be Jesus. And since we've studied the book of Revelation, you know that my understanding of this and I believe most of your understandings of this would be, this is the Antichrist. This is the person in Revelation 12 and 13 who hasn't yet appeared. This is the person in Revelation 19 who will be destroyed by Jesus at Christ's second coming. We also know that this has to be future because the abomination of desolation hasn't happened yet. Matthew 24, verse 15, Jesus is speaking of the abomination of desolation as a future event. And verse 27 talks about the abomination of desolation. So it can't have happened yet. It couldn't have already happened. And finally, since Jesus hasn't come back the second time, when he came back, when he showed up the first time, after the 483 years, he showed up. And I believe after this, this seven-year period of time, he's going to show up. And he's going to do away with the Antichrist. He's going to do away with the, the evil of the apostasy of Israel. I think that's the whole point of that seven-year period of tribulation and great tribulation. It's God's reclamation project to get Israel back. So I think it's a future seven-year period of time. Now, one massive question that's raised here is, is it right to see a gap? Patrick, you're just kind of shoving a gap of 2,000 years in there. Would Daniel have understood it that way? And I don't think he would have. He would have seen a gap I don't think he would have think, thought it was 2,000 years. Am I just shoving a gap in there to fit my theology? I don't think so. I, I think I just proved that with the 69 weeks. Then after that, Jesus dies. Then after that, 70th week starts. So there's already a little bit of a gap. But just three verses I want to take you to so you can see these. And, and write these down because it'd be helpful to remember there are other gaps in the Old Testament that happen like that. And there are thousands of years of gaps so go to Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9, verse 9. You guys know this passage. This is the triumphal entry. Zechariah 9, rejoice, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Make a loud shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and endowed with salvation. He's lowly and mounted on a donkey, even the colt of a donkey, the foal of a pack animal. We've got verse 9 is the triumphal entry. That's Jesus' fulfillment of that is the triumphal entry. Verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations, and his reign will be from sea to sea and the river to the ends of the earth. That hasn't happened yet. 
We're still waiting for that. So verse 9 is 33 AD. Verse 10 hasn't happened. 2,000 years away. Go to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. You know this one as well. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This is what God says. Unto you a child will be born. Unto you a son will be given. And the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This is Christ. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. That hasn't happened yet. So verse 6 has happened. Verse 7, we're still awaiting the fulfillment. One last one in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61 at the beginning, verse 1. You remember this passage in Luke chapter 4? This is where Jesus is reading the scroll of Isaiah and he stops. He stops because he's going to fulfill part of it. He says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then he's waiting because the other part's waiting for fulfillment. You remember this passage. Uh, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. The spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives, freedom to prisoners, and the, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh. And that's where he stops. Because the next sentence, the day of vengeance of our God, we're waiting for that. So mid-sentence, there's an over 2,000 year gap. So I, I don't think that it's wrong in Daniel 9 to insert a gap there. I, I think it's seen in other verses in the Old Testament. And ultimately, I think there has to be a gap there because if there wasn't a gap there, then we're talking about the second coming of Christ. We're talking the end of this, the second coming of Christ, the end of Daniel's 70th week. And Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. But if there wasn't a gap, if it was just 490 years from the decree to the day, there would be a lot of people who would know the day or the hour. There has to be a gap. Why? Why is there a gap here? Because remember who this prophecy was given to. To Daniel and his people and his holy city. This is given to the Jews to explain when they're going to get their kingdom in its entirety, in its complete fulfillment. They don't have a kingdom yet. God promised them a kingdom. God's going to give them a kingdom. And I believe it's the millennial kingdom that we studied in Revelation chapter 20. And that kingdom is not here. It hasn't happened yet. That it will happen. Right now, there's a big gap. There's a pause because of Israel's apostasy. God has graciously given the gospel to the church. He's given it to you and to me so that we as Gentiles are grafted in to God's promises to the Jews. And then when we get to the tribulation, the great tribulation, that seven-year period of time, as we study the book of Revelation, it is primarily focused on the Jews to call them back to repentance and to save them, which is why Romans chapter 11 says, all Israel will be saved in that day. We're waiting for that fulfillment. It hasn't happened yet. But the 70th week of Daniel, otherwise known as 
The great tribulation that Jesus talks about, otherwise known as the time of Jacob's trouble or the day of the Lord, all of these phrases that the Old Testament uses that Jesus picks up on, they're all describing when God will press play again. Pause is over with the Israelites, with the Jewish people, and God's going after them to grab their souls and to bring them to himself. And that happens in the end times. And by the way, in verse 27, this prince who is yet to come, who makes the firm covenant, for a week, for a period of seven years, we have in the middle of that week, right in the middle, it's three and a half years, and we see that in the book of Revelation. Revelation 11 and 13 describes that. Uh, 1,260 days, 42 months, it describes a period of three and a half years, and then something happens. The abomination of desolation, the Antichrist does something. Even Daniel, we saw it in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, time, times, and half a time, three and a half. So, After the 483 years, the first 69 weeks, at some point during the ministry of Jesus, Israel's prophetic clock stopped ticking shortly after their rejection of Messiah. When they put him to death, the the city of Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, the Jews are scattered. But God says, you're not done. There's going to be a seven-year period in the future when the events of verse 27 will unfold and God will finally finish his plan with his people Israel. Four questions. What are the 70 weeks? There's 77, 490 years. What will happen as a result of those 70 weeks? Those six things that are given in verse 24, many of which have not happened yet. What's the progression of those 70 weeks? It starts when the decree is given either to Ezra or to Nehemiah. The middle, the 69 weeks end, 483 years end at either AD 27 with the baptism of Jesus or AD 33 with the triumphal entry and then the death of Christ. Then we have the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And then in a future period yet to come of seven years, the Antichrist will show up. He'll make a covenant with the many. The temple will be rebuilt. Sacrifices will continue. Peace will be given. And then he's going to break that covenant in the middle of that week, three and a half years into that period of time. And then at the end of that period of time, Messiah will show up, second coming of Christ, and he's going to make all of those six things promised in verse 24 finally happen. Everlasting righteousness brought in. Anointing the Holy of Holies. The temple is going to be rebuilt. And he's going to rule and reign from it. So, that's the explanation with those four questions Now the so what? I think there's three realities that we can walk away with, three implications, three points of application that should land heavy on us, even though that was a bit technical. Number one, be confident of God's plan. Be confident of God's plan. God holds the future and it will come to pass exactly as he says it will. Brothers and sisters, the world does seem chaotic and out of order, it seems like a runaway train sometimes. Like we're on this runaway train and we don't know where it's going, when it's going to stop. And we're yelling up to the front. Is there a conductor up there? Is there somebody who knows where we're headed? This is God saying to you and to me, I know exactly where it's headed. Brothers and sisters, don't worry about all the technical details. This is God saying, I've got a plan. I know the end. You'll be safe. Think about everything that's prophesied. First of all, it's prophesied Messiah would come 483 years after the decree to rebuild the city. 
which is exactly when Jesus showed up. Secondly, it's prophesied Messiah would be killed. He, he was. Third, it's prophesied that he would eventually return and destroy the Antichrist. So that tells us he had to have been raised from the dead because he's going to show up again. And he was raised from the dead. We're told the end of the age, at the end of the age, the evil ruler is going to arise and persecute God's people. And we know that that's going to happen based off of Revelation. Messiah is going to return and destroy that evil ruler and establish his own kingdom. I mean, all of these things either have already come to pass in their perfection or we're awaiting their fulfillment in their perfection. So be confident. Be confident of God's plan. Let's not be, let's not be lazy about the future. Let's not be worried about the future. Let's not be anxious about the future. Let's be confident about God's plan. Secondly, don't be afraid of the future. Don't be afraid of the future. We should be the most fearless people in the world. We should be. Because of Daniel's 70th week. We know it's going to get bad. Daniel's telling us that. We know it's going to get a lot worse. But we know without a shadow of a doubt. Brothers and sisters, take this with you. We know evil will never ultimately win. It won't. Del Ralph Davis says, a final ruler will exalt himself, impose his authority, forbid true worship, instigate idolatrous worship, and then run into the meat grinder of God's decree. Predetermined, on target, certain. Antichrist is going to look like he's ruling and reigning with nobody to stop him, and then God's going to show up and say, you're done. Seven years. Don't be afraid of the future. Don't be afraid of the short-term future or the long-term future. Evil will not win. God does. And finally, number three. When we talk about be confident in God's plan for the future and then don't be afraid of the future, where I want us to land is the glory that is hidden inside of this text. Did you see the crux of this text? Number three, the third application is the glory of Messiah's death. Don't forget in all of the fun of the mathematics and the timelines and all of the fun of trying to figure out all the technical details. And we did a lot of work this morning. But don't forget the crux of this passage is verse 26, Messiah will be cut off. If Jesus didn't die, then we have no hope. And if he died and he stayed dead, then we have no hope. But if he died and he rose from the dead and he's coming back, then it doesn't really matter what happens. We say that all the time on Easter Sunday, right? If the resurrection didn't happen, nothing matters. But if the resurrection happened, and since it happened, nothing else matters other than that, other than Christ. Don't forget in all of the fun of diving into this text and trying to figure it out and all the technical stuff, this text is all about Jesus. It's all about Messiah coming once to give his life as a ransom for many so that he could come a second time to fulfill all these six things given to us in verse 24 to call a people to himself, to give them a kingdom that he's promised to them, and to rule and to reign in everlasting righteousness. God, we thank you so much that you are the prince. You are the true prince. We have a prince that is yet to come, the Antichrist, literally the false Messiah. He's going to be an imposter. He's going to try to look like you, act like you. Uh, we will be able to see it. We'll see, see right through it. God, we know we know evil will have its day. Just like Jesus said, this is the hour of the power of darkness. Evil has been given a deadline. 
It'll have its day and then it'll be done. God, I praise you for the glory of Christ. The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The King of kings and the Lord of lords who had all of heaven's praises will have nothing so that he could give us everything. All we can say is hallelujah, what a savior, and rest in your sovereign plan for us. Come what may, good, bad, whatever it is, you are ruling and reigning on your throne. And we love you and we trust you. We pray it all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.